If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 15, where we're continuing to look at the parable of the prodigal son. And uh, I, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, uh, I've been uh, going through it at a slower pace. We first kind of surveyed the whole chapter. We looked at the three parables of the lost sheep, lost coin, and then uh, the lost son or the prodigal son. All three parables were given to uh, address a certain need or situation in verses 1 and 2, which was that the scribes and Pharisees were grumbling because tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus for salvation. So Jesus addresses these three parables to confront them, so to speak, to address their grumbling hearts that um, they don't like it that these sinners, these tax collectors who they believed were traitors and rebels who deserved hell were actually coming to Jesus. While all three parables in Luke 15 are similar in some respects, the parable of the prodigal son has a lot of extra detail. As a matter of fact, it paints a very vivid detail of quite a few different things, and we've been going slower through it just to find out what some of those things are. So if you have your Bible, this morning I want to read verses 11 through 20 of Luke 15, and you can follow along as I read. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. And he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, and I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. I didn't plan it this way. It's just what happens when I was studying. Um, I saw six different lies that the prodigal bought into, which caused him to be lost. Then we looked at six different consequences of his sin, which came upon him because he believed those lies and acted upon them, which he suffered and then which God used to humble him. And this morning, we're going to begin to show you these six characteristics of true repentance so that you are not deceived into thinking you have repented if indeed you have not, and so that you won't be deceived into thinking others have repented, if indeed they have not. Keep in mind that verses 17 through 20, uh, verse A, Jesus is emphasizing what happened from the prodigal's 
point of view, from the prodigal's point of view, and from his point of view, he came to his senses. And this is what we want to talk about this morning, his repentance. And that repentance is a gift of God. If you look at verse 17, it says, but when he came to his senses, just stop there. This is the most significant phrase in the whole parable. He came to his senses. This is the turning point. This is the change. This is what brought him around. This is when he stopped and turned from his path of self-destruction. The Greek literally reads that he came to himself. He just, in the vernacular, got a clue. He got a clue. All of a sudden he realized, what am I doing? Why am I here? Why did I hurt my dad? Why did I sin against him? Why did I despise my inheritance and squander my estate and run away from God? Look at me. He he just saw himself. He came to his senses. He got a clue. Now keep in mind that Jesus has crafted this sermon, this little parable rather, to make the prodigal as odious as possible to the religious leaders. He has purposely made the parable such that any of the religious leaders, and even most of the Jews, but especially the religious leaders who are grumbling, are just going to just go Ick. They're just going to be repulsed. They're just going to be, he's the most odious young man they could think of. Look at what he did to his dad. He asked for his inheritance early and it was like asking his dad, I wish you were drop dead. I wish you were dead. Not only that, he says, I want my portion of the inheritance now, which meant He didn't care about his land inheritance, which couldn't be given early. It could only be given after the father's death. So he was despising his inheritance from the Lord, which to the Jewish leaders just would have been unthinkable. Then having got the cash in hand, he runs to a distant country and then he squanders all of his wealth, which have just been a horrendous sin on prostitutes, on loose living, he just plunges himself into sin. And then becoming impoverished, he goes to work for a Gentile, an unclean Gentile, and not only an unclean Gentile, but an unclean Gentile pig farmer. And so at this point, the religious leaders are like, oh, they, they're, they think, oh, This guy should suffer. This guy should suffer big time. I hope this guy gets what's coming to him. The InterVarsity Press background Bible commentary comments about this phrase. Quote, at this point, Jesus' Jewish hearers are ready for the story to end. Like a similar second century Jewish story, the son gets what he deserves 
He is reduced to the horrendous level of feeding the most unclean animals. The son is cut off at this point from the Jewish community and any financial charity it would otherwise offer him, end quote. The Jewish listeners, especially the scribes and Pharisees, are ready for, and he got what he deserved. Amen. But suddenly... In an unexpected turn of events, totally out of the blue, right before Jesus says, and that's what you get when you sin against God, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, and he came to his senses. He sees himself as a wretched, rebellious, disrespectful, unloving, spoiled brat, He has plunged himself into a life of wanton pleasure, estranged himself from his family, from his Jewish community, sinned against God. But now he's come to his senses. How in the world did that happen? He sees himself rightly. He turns away from his sin. He goes back to his father. And you know what this is called? Repentance. He repented. He repented. Golden Eyes in his commentary in Luke summarized the prodigal's repentance. Well, quote, finally disillusioned by the unpleasant experiences and the far country. He realizes how foolish he acted in tearing himself away from his father. Mindful of the conditions existing in his father's house, he now sees his own state of misery in all of its naked reality. The first step towards true repentance is that a man should become conscious of the misery into which he has fallen in the far country of sin. That he should see himself as he is in his intrinsic need and shameful defilement, end quote. And this is exactly what happens. This is exactly what happens. Now, it's important to note at this point something About the three parables. The first two parables. Have this basic motif. Something is lost. Sought after. And found. The shepherd searches for the lost sheep. Finds the lost sheep. And recovers it. The woman loses the coin in the dust of the floor. Sweeps the floor with holding a lamp. Recovers it. But what about the prodigal? Does the father say, okay, get a search party. We're sweeping the Mediterranean world to find him wherever he went. Go out and look for him. I'm going out to look for him. We've got to bring him back. Does that happen? No. He waits. He waits patiently for his son to return. And so there seems to be this huge difference here between Recovering the lost sheep and recovering the lost coin and recovering the lost son. But the difference is only apparent. It is not real. Why? Because in order for a sinner to come to repentance, there has to be a certain sequence of divine uh, events that must take place or that person will never come to salvation. You say, well, what are those? I'm going to tell you. First, 
one must be chosen by God unto salvation before the foundation of the world. You know, there are some who just don't like this doctrine. Had somebody come up after the service and say, you know, I'm just glad that God has chosen everyone. I said, no, he hasn't. He's only chosen some and they're described as the few, not the many. Well, I just don't think it's fair. Well, if you want fair, then you want hell. Because hell is fair. But grace is gracious. Say, well, why would we share our faith if God already knows who he's going to save? Well, it's not so you can save them. Is that why you share your faith so you can save people? No, you share faith, your faith so God can save people because he uses the means of the gospel. Well, why pray if God already knows who he's going to save? Well, because God tells you to and he's God. Because God wants to get himself glory when he answers your prayers. Yes, but I just have a problem with that. Doesn't God say in his word that all, if they believe, can believe in? Yes, the gospel is given to all, but never confuse a universal call to all men as universal predestination. The Bible never says that. But the first thing that must happen in the sequence of events leading up to somebody's repentance is they must be chosen before the foundation of the world. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter one, verses three through five. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now listen here. Just as he, that is God, chose us. In him before the foundation of the world. And just so we aren't confused here, you weren't born then. (laughs) That we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ to himself According to the kind intention, here it is, of his will. And then in verse 11, it goes on to say, also, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Paul encouraging the Thessalonian believers says in second Thessalonians two thirteen and 14, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for a salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this. He called you through our gospel That you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God calls us. God predestines us. I mean, people, if you can't figure that one out, okay. But don't deny it. Don't deny it. God does not choose everybody to eternal life. But all he chooses 
come. I know you think, well, who are the chosen? Well, believe and then you'll know you're one of them. A lot of people get all hung up on this and say, well, you know, um, what about all the unbelievers in the world? Well, what about them? Preach the gospel to all creation, to every person. But what if they aren't predestined? Well, that's not for you to know. It's not for you to know. It's for you to pray for them, you to witness to them, for God to save them. And once they are saved, the doctrine of predestination is there to encourage those who are saved. What torments us is when we take the doctrine and we try to apply it to unbelievers, something the Bible never does. You do that, you'll just torture yourself on the rack of your own mental griefs. Trying to figure out, okay, how does this work? How does this work? Okay. Um, you know, should I witness that guy? I wonder if he's predestined or not. Well, share the gospel with him. He comes to Christ, you'll know he is. So what if... What if I'm not predestined? Well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved and you'll know you're predestined. But what if I'm not? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what if I'm not? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. And then God will say, by the way, I chose you. I'm sorry if that doesn't work for you. It's what the scriptures teach. And we err if we say it's not true because it scares me. And we err if we say we don't have to believe. The Bible says believe. And once you believe, you've been predestined. That's what it teaches. That's what we receive. There's no excuse. It's no justification for rejecting Christ. Can you imagine standing before Christ on judgment day saying, listen, you know, I couldn't believe because you didn't predestine me. No, he's going to say, no, you didn't believe because you didn't want me. You rejected me. You ran from me. You wouldn't submit to me. That's why you're being judged. Of course, all those who are saved are going to be saved because God saved them and chose them before the foundation of the world. We read in Acts 13, 48, Paul and Barnabas are there. They're preaching the gospel at Poseidon, Antioch, and a bunch of people come to Christ. And this is how Luke describes what happened when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. That's pretty clear, isn't it? As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So why do I bring this up? Well, the prodigal in the story, when he comes to his senses, there was a reason. It's because God, before the foundation of the world, chose him to an adoption as sons. Secondly, Jesus needed to die for our sins and be resurrected from the dead to provide that necessary sacrifice and atonement for sin so that we can be saved. Just repenting and believing in Jesus without the death of Christ would be no good. Jesus wouldn't, there would be no gospel if Jesus didn't die and rise again. You remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4? He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was resurrected on the third day, according to the scriptures. That is a necessary thing. First Peter chapter three, verse 18, Peter says the same thing in a smaller form for Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. God needed to be born into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. God had to send his only begotten son, God in human flesh, Jesus, to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, to be buried and resurrected on the third day so that we can be saved. That is the ground of our salvation. Paul reminds Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 6, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Jesus is the Savior of the world, and that he is the only Savior who's offered. He is the only Savior. In Hebrews 2.9, it says Jesus tasted death for everyone. Isaiah says it this way. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if a sinner could come to their senses, if a sinner could, on their own power, resurrect themselves from their spiritually dead state, if they could see Christ and believe in him and trust in him and cling to him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength on their own apart from the grace of God, but Jesus never died and never resurrected from the dead, they couldn't be saved. It has to happen. It is the point in history that had to happen. All the Old Testament saints were saved, looking forward to what Christ would do, and all those on this side of the cross are all saved because they look back to what Christ did, but Christ had to die so that anyone who gets saved gets saved through that work. The Apostle John says in 1 John 2, 2, and he himself, speaking of Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also those of the whole world. This word propitiation, probably not a um, commonly used word for most of you, means that which satisfies the wrath of God, a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. You could read it this way. And he himself is the sacrifice which satisfies the wrath of God for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. This doesn't mean that everybody is saved, obviously, because they are not. But it does mean that he is the one who is offered to the whole world as the only one who can save anyone who believes. He is the one who is the propitiation and he offers himself, come to me. I mean, Jesus calls sinners to repentance. If you are a sinner, you're being called to repentance. The call to the gospel is universal. 
It means Jesus is offered to all men and presented to all men as the only sacrifice that can satisfy the wrath of God. And this has to happen before anyone can come to their senses and be saved. Third, the father must orchestrate us coming in contact with the gospel and giving us a clue, so to speak, so that we see our condition and desire to be saved. That is a work of God. You know, sometimes people, when we look at it from our perspective, if we just look at our own salvation, what do we think? We think, you know, there was a point in my life where I kind of got interested in religion. You know, I just wasn't feeling good. I'd kind of just been burnt out on sin and the world. And so I, you know, maybe started talking to a Christian friend or started going to church or looking up different religions. And eventually I discovered that Christianity was the true religion. I understood the gospel. And after having come to that understanding, I then decided to give my life to Christ. And that would be a trolly true statement from just the human perspective. That would be like saying the prodigal came to his senses because he did. He himself came to his senses, but it wasn't he by himself. You know, with each sin, we basically dig a hole that goes all the way to hell. And we've dug a lot of dirt out of that hole. And then we just jump into it. We're spiritually dead is what the scriptures describe us as spiritually dead. Spiritually dead means you can't do anything spiritual. Just like a physically dead person can't do anything physical. A spiritually dead person can't do anything spiritual. So just like you can't go to the morgue and talk to a guy who's on one of those cold steel things. Like, how you doing? Put her there. Give me five. Can you wiggle your toe? Can you blink your eye? Can you nod? No, no response. Why? Physically dead. So when someone doesn't know Christ, the Bible describes them as spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, which means whenever it comes to anything spiritual, they can't respond. Well, the gospel is spiritual. Coming to salvation is about as spiritual as you can get. This creates a tension. A tension in a lot of people's minds. They're going, well, what are you saying? Are you saying that if I'm spiritually dead, I can't be saved? Well, then how did I get saved? Turn to John 6. Turn to John chapter 6. Jesus here is describing in John 6, in the middle of the chapter, That he is the bread of life. Verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. So he's using this uh, analogy of uh, the manna fell from heaven so that the Israelites could eat that manna and live. So Jesus has come down out of heaven, figuratively speaking, is the bread, the manna of life. And anybody who receives him is going to live also, but not just physically and temporarily, but for eternity. Look at verse 37. I just want you to think through these things. Notice what he says. All that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Now you just have to, I mean, it's not a hard scripture to interpret here. It says every single, all every in each person that the father gives to Jesus will for certain come to him. And. Jesus isn't going to cast him out. That's pretty clear. 
That is pretty clear. That's about as clear as you can get. Look down at verse 44. Jesus also goes on to say, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Notice again, how many people seek God? None. That's why Paul says in Romans, there are how many who seek God? None. No, not even one. In case you didn't hit the, hear the first one, not even one. No one seeks after God. So what's interesting here is you say, okay, okay, I, I see this. I see here that if the father does give someone to Jesus, they come and are not cast out. I also see here from verse 44 that no one can even come to the father unless he draws him, drags him. This is the term used for pulling mules along with a rope. Pulls him. And if the father does lasso you with his grace, and if he does draw you to Christ, you will be saved and be resurrected on the last day. That's good. But look at verse 47. Notice also, Jesus doesn't just throw away human responsibility here. He doesn't say, you don't have to do anything. Just live your life and God will just reach down from heaven, you know, and just swoop you up. No, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So now we also see that we have to believe. We need to believe. So you think, okay, okay, okay. Um, we got to believe, but we can't. Is that what you're saying? I'm just reading the verses. You got to believe, but you can't. Okay, but if God gives you to Christ, you're going to come, which means you're going to believe and no one can come because no one wants to believe unless God draws them by grace and then they come and then they do believe because God draws them by grace. Is that what you're saying now? Well, that's what the Bible says. Look at verse 51. He also says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, notice there is volition involved. You choose to eat the bread, which figuratively speaking, you choose to receive Christ, partake of Christ. Is it just God's sovereignty? No. Is it just man's will? No. It is God's sovereignty enabling man's will. Look down at verse 65. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the father. You can't come. You won't come. You think, oh, man, that is radical. So. Why do we bring this up? Because no one ever comes to their senses unless God the Father first draws them to be given to Jesus. Fourth, the Holy Spirit must open our hearts to the truth, illumine our minds to the gospel so that the, you know, the scales fall off our eyes so that we see the, our spiritual blindness and it departs and all of a sudden the cloud is gone and we come to our senses like a man who awakes in a house that's on fire. And we bolt up in bed and we look around and we realize my house is on fire. 
I'm going to perish. And then all of a sudden we look and there's Jesus. Run for the fire escape. And we bolt for Christ. And believe me, when we bolt for Christ and we get outside the house and we see it just engulfed in flames, we don't go, I wish I could go back in there. When we leave, we don't want to go back. When we turn from that house on fire, when the Holy Spirit illumines our mind to the truth, we're like the prodigal who, when he got into the country, he came to his senses and thought, what am I doing here? How did I get here? Look at what I've done. Ah, I'm going back to dad. And he turns around and goes home and he never goes back. You say, well, how does this happen? How does somebody get waken up out of their spiritual death slumber? When their house is on fire, how do, how do they get to the place where they get a clue? Jesus, speaking of the Holy Spirit, who would be given at Pentecost, says in John 16, verse 8, and he, when he comes, will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, speaking of the Holy Spirit. And you remember what happened at Pentecost, right? I mean, here all these Jews were. They're here to work, you know, celebrate the feast. They weren't here to receive Jesus as the Messiah. And all of a sudden, the apostles start preaching. And what happens? The Holy Spirit is poured out. And then what happens? They're broken. And they all realize, oh, no, we crucified our own Messiah. And thousands are converted. Thousands are converted. Because the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. The Holy Spirit reveals to you that you are a sinner. It gives you spiritual sight. It helps you see the condition you were in. I have seen people who were so hardened to sin. They were just hardened and hardened and hardened. And you try to explain to them, hey, I'm a good person. I'm gonna... And all of a sudden, there's just a point in their life where they're, they're broken. I've seen people that literally looked like there was an invisible hand that just had them by the neck and were shaking them. I mean, literally. I've seen them just trembling, just their whole body quaking unto repentance. When God broke them. And if you were to ask those people, what's wrong? Oh, man. They just see themselves like they're just covered with tar. It's like, I am such a sinner. I can see I'm in trouble. I'm headed for hell. And they're just traumatized. I've had people tell me I'm sitting at my office or I'm sitting at home or I'm sitting on my bed. And all of a sudden I realize... I'm going to hell. I've sinned against God and I'm going to hell. And they come to their senses. It's not that they weren't going to hell before that. But all of a sudden, they come to their senses. And how does that happen? By the Holy Spirit. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and show you this. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. I want to just show you something here. Paul here is describing an unbeliever. He describes the unbeliever as the natural man. And he says this, but the natural man does not accept the things, the spirit of God. 
for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. Obviously, the natural man doesn't have the Holy Spirit. He's spiritually dead. And so he can't appraise spiritual things. You know, it's like trying to receive reception, you know, on your radio, but you unplug it. Turn the knob all you want. Nothing's coming in. There's no power there. You cannot receive any signal. Well, so it is with the unbeliever. He's spiritually dead. He cannot understand the things of the, of the spirit. He can't do it. In the Greek, it literally says he does not have the dunamis, the power, the dynamite within him to bring himself to an experiential knowledge of the truth. He cannot do it. I don't know about you. That puts unbelievers in a seriously bad spot. You say, well, so what Paul's saying here is that an unbeliever can't understand the gospel. That is exactly what he says here. Exactly. He cannot do it. Think, well, then how does anyone get saved? How did the Corinthian believers get saved? Well, look up at verse 10. Paul says, how? For to us, believers who have come to their senses, God revealed them, these things of the gospel, through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except for the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Did you see that? How does a believer ever come to be a believer if he cannot understand the things of the spirit of God? Because the Holy Spirit comes upon them and says, I'm going to give you understanding. Because on your own, you don't have the power within yourself to understand the things of God. But now I'm going to give you those of that ability so you can see what's going on in your life. Like a man who wakes up in a house on fire, like the prodigal who in that far country of sin comes to his senses and goes, what am I doing here? You can't come to your senses unless the Holy Spirit first is working in your life to bring you to that place. Fifth, God must even supply us with the faith we need to believe. John in his gospel says in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice here that God gives us the right to become children of God and to believe in his name. And we are not born by our own will, but by his will. In Ephesians 2, 8, we know that one. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. 
Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake. Who grants us the ability to believe? God. God. The prodigal, like all sinners who come to faith in Jesus Christ, who come to their senses, who finally realize, I've got to go back to the Father. He's the one who will take care of me. He's the one who will rescue me. He's the one that I need. They all come to that place because the Holy Spirit is working in their life to bring them to that place where they realize, I've got to get out of here and go the other way. Finally, sixth and finally, we arrive at the main point, the big idea of this verse and really this section in verses uh, 17 through 20. And this is the whole idea of repentance. The whole phrase he came to his sentences senses really means he repented. He gets a clue. He turns around and he goes the other way. He goes back. He repents. It means to turn around. It literally means to have a change of mind about face of mind to realize that you're doing what's wrong, that you've, you need to go in the other direction. And it's not only a change of mind, just a mental thing only. It is a mental thing that also changes the way you live because your heart directs your life. And when you repent from the heart, you, your life changes with it. You can't say, well, you know, um, as some say, repentance is just a change of mind. It's just agreeing with God that, that you're a sinner. You can keep living with your girlfriend. You can keep worshiping Moloch. You can keep bowing down to Dagon. You can keep, you know, worshiping Satan. As long as you agree that it's wrong. No. No, that's not how it works. Remember what John the Baptist and Jesus both said, bring forth fruit in what? Keeping with repentance. Keeping with repentance. And even repentance itself is a gift of God. A lot of people say things like, well, you can't tell people to repent and believe because if you tell them to repent, that's a human work. A lot of people think repentance is clean up your act so that God will accept you. No, that's just being a moralist. Some people think that repentance is kind of what you do and then faith is what God does. No, God grants you repentance and grants you faith. And then you respond to the grace given to you. It is. It's like this faith. Why isn't faith a work. I mean, we're called to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But yet, it's by grace we've been saved. Through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of work so that no one can boast. We, we aren't saved by, the, by our work of faith. So why isn't faith a work? It's because faith is granted. We just saw that, right? God gives us the faith we need to believe. That is why we need to also realize that repentance is also granted to us from God. And when God gives us that repentance, then we respond in by turning away. But listen, you can't just say, well, listen, I I've repented, but I'm not leaving my sin. I'm staying in the house. I'm going down in flames. I, I, I'm I'm not 
leaving the, the country of sin here. I'm just going to I'm just going to let you know I've had a, I've agreed mentally. Now, you need to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. You need to let go of turn your back on release forsake your life. That is why Isaiah says what he is in Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. And, you know, let the wicked forsake his way how he lives and the unrighteous man his thoughts how he thinks and let him return or repent to the lord and he will have compassion on him and to our god for he will abundantly pardon you must repent of your ways and your actions it's not just a mental exercise I mean, twice Jesus says in Luke chapter 13, verses 3 and 5, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. What do you mean to tell me that you don't need to repent? I mean, Jesus preached repentance. John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus said, you, you don't repent, you're going to perish. Paul preached repentance. I mean, what do you mean you don't need to repent? And so you see, the problem is, is a lot of people see repentance as, as this like additional thing. You, you're saved by grace through faith alone. And there is no repentance alone. But you know what? When you read the Bible, what do you see? Sometimes the Bible says, repent. And that's all. Sometimes the Bible says, believe. And that's all. And sometimes the Bible says, repent and believe. And that's all. So you say, well, which one is it? Yes. <laughs> yes. You see, faith is what positively grabs on to, receive, clings to, trusts in Jesus Christ. Repentance is what negatively lets go of, turns from, releases. Repentance is what you turn from to have faith in Christ. Edwin Orr explains it this way in a very succinct and I think good way. Does repent and believe the gospel imply that a sinner must do two things to be saved and not only one? The exhortation is really only one requirement. The instruction, leave London and go to Los Angeles, sounds like a twofold request, but it really is one. It is impossible to go to Los Angeles without leaving London. Obviously. You cannot keep worshiping Satan and then receive Christ. You have to repent. And that's why the scriptures say repent, because if you repent, you will believe. And if you believe, you have to repent. It's just two different aspects of the action that must occur in order for someone to be saved. And I know there's people say, well, I just I just have a problem with that because it seems like you're, you're adding something that you do. We're not saying clean up your act so you can be saved. That's not what the scriptures teach. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is the divine act of God, which causes you to turn from your sin and believe. Think, well, does the Bible say that? Well, let me just tell you what it says. Acts 531, Peter's talking uh, to the Jews about Jesus. And he says this, listen, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior. Here it is. To grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. 
repentance was granted to Israel for the forgiveness of sins. In Acts chapter 11, verses 17, Paul or Peter returns to Jerusalem to tell the others how the Gentiles were saved. And the text says, therefore, if God gave to them the same gift, he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, they received the Holy Spirit too. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and they glorified God. Well, then God has granted the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Paul in Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul talks to Timothy about those who oppose his ministry. And he says, just be patient when wronged. Why? With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So are you telling me that God grants you repentance? That's exactly what I'm telling you that the word of God teaches God gives you repentance just like he gives you faith just like he opens your mind just like he chooses you before the foundation of the world just like he draws you to himself all of this must happen before you come to your senses repentance is a gift of God's grace that's why it's not a work of man it's the work of God in man And then we respond by coming to our senses. You're sitting out there. You're the prodigal son, the prodigal daughter, the prodigal husband, the prodigal wife, the prodigal grandmother or grandfather or uncle or I don't know, whoever you are. The question is this. Are you still living in that far country of sin or have you come to your senses? Now, if you're sitting there going, oh, by the grace of God, I've come to my senses. Well, then you need to praise him for that. You need to thank him for that. I mean, we don't even know what's going on. All we know is we get saved and we think it's so cool. And it's not until we study the scriptures, we realize, whoa, I was in really bad condition. That if God hadn't chose me, if God hadn't awakened me, if God hadn't drawn me, if God hadn't Open my eyes. If God hadn't given me the faith, if God hadn't granted me repentance, I would still be on my way to hell. But God, who is rich in mercy and grace, awakens sinners and they come to their senses. And if you are sitting out there this morning and you realize, whoa, that is me. My house is on fire. I'm living in the far country of sin. I need Jesus. Then run to Christ. Don't just say, well, I believe in Jesus. The demons believe in Jesus. I mean, trust Christ. Receive Christ as your savior. Believe in him as the only one who can save you from your sins because you need saved from your sins. You're going to leave your own control of your life. You're going to die to self. You're going to take up your cross. You're going to turn your back on your old style of life. And you're going to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, your Lord, your Master, and your King to live for Him from now on forever, never again to return to the house that's on fire. That is repentance. None of this, well, you know... I do want to be saved, but could you just give me an asbestos suit so I can still live there? No, there are no asbestos suits. You either leave 
that country and flee to Christ or you go down in flames with the whole world. Those are the only two options. What God says to you, he says in Acts 17, 30 and 31, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent for there is coming a day when he will judge the living and the dead through a man who he has appointed heir, having furnished proof proof by raising him from the dead. And you know, that is it's Jesus. Jesus is the savior right now to you. If you reject him, he'll be judged later and there'll be no escaping. So if you see your sins, if God has awakened you, if you realize I got to do something, then do it right now. Ask Christ to save you. Ask Christ to change your life, to forgive you of your sins. Trust in Christ alone who died in the cross so that you could believe in him and be saved by what he did, not by what you do. When prodigals come to their senses, They come to their senses and they turn and they believe because God is working behind the scenes. This is what you don't see in the parable, the prodigal, which means this. The shepherd goes out and finds the sheep and retrieves it. The woman sweeps the floor and finds the coin. And God does all of these things to bring prodigals home. Now, that is the first point of the six. And um, (laughs) there was a moan. I don't know. And uh, I just couldn't. I just couldn't go any farther. I'm sorry. Um, This is the way it is. Maybe we'll get to the other five next time. (laughs) Miracles do happen. But I just hope that if you don't know Christ as your savior, If you're just kind of dabbling in sin and you kind of want to appease your conscience, you know, I'm going to go to church and kind of to massage my conscience because, you know, maybe if I just give a little money or maybe if I kind of hang around other Christians, it'll make God like me. It won't. It won't make him like you. Maybe I give a lot of money, then he'll like, no, he won't. Maybe if you sacrifice, you know, one of your children, no, it won't work. I mean, that's exactly what. Micah says, you know, is the Lord pleased with 10,000 rivers of oil? Should I sacrifice my firstborn? No, it doesn't work. There's only one thing that works. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's Christ and Christ alone. He is the ground, the savior, the propitiation, not only for our sins of those who believe, but those of the whole world. Come to Christ and he will save you. Reject him. You'll be judged forever. That is the message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for just the picture here of this young man totally submerged in sin in a faraway country, having wandered so far away from his earthly home and heavenly father. And yet, In an unexpected turn of events, by your grace, from what we have learned from your word, you brought him to his senses. Father, may we leave here today praising you and thanking you for those of us who have been brought to our senses and drawn by your grace to Jesus Christ. 
And Father, if there's anybody here this morning who has never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has never trusted Christ as their Savior, who's only given him lip service and just a shallow profession, but doesn't really love the Lord, may you break them, may you humble them, and may you bring them to a place of absolute certain surety that they are on their way to heaven because they have a transformed life and are bringing forth fruit in keeping with true repentance. Father, we ask this knowing that only you can do it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.